If you are visiting with us this morning, we are so glad that you're here, and uh, we have been studying through the Gospel of John. It just so happened that we're in chapter 3 of John's Gospel, and uh, it was appropriate, I just thought, how God arranged things to, to look at John 3.16 on Christmas Sunday. Um, but I want to begin this morning by telling you a little bit of a, of a story um, about a family who I think has just experienced a, a, an incredible, amazing gift. Um, it's an Indonesian family, and this Indonesian family, um, about, oh, seven years ago, um, lost their eight-year-old daughter when the tsunami, day after Christmas, hit their island. The, the mother, uh, in particular, was holding on to her, her two children, and when the waters came, uh, she lost the grip of her eight-year-old daughter by the name of Wadi, and she was washed out into the ocean, and uh, never seen, never found, um, and presumed dead. Um, seven years later, three days ago, she shows up in her village. She walks into a cafe and she says, do you know Ibrahim? That was the only name she could remember from her family. It was the name of her grandfather. And she was reunited just moments later with her family. <laughs> Seven years, she's been wandering around the islands of Indonesia trying to find her way home. What an absolutely fantastic gift that family is experiencing right now, to think that their precious child was gone and to show up. And um, just think about how precious our children are. Just think about all the struggle and the suffering that those families went through when they, they knew that they had, they had lost this child. And just, just contemplate that for yourself, the pain and the struggle that they may have gone through. And here was Wadi wandering all over the place trying to find her way home, trying to find her family. And, I, and as I, I thought about this story when I read it, I was really struck with the amazingness of the story. But I thought about how many people are, are wandering this, this world, trying to find a place that they can call home, a place to fit, a place to, to find some kind of satisfaction or, or belonging and yet there are so many people who are living with the struggle of really not being settled and not finding that place. And I'm not necessarily talking about a physical place. I'm talking about the struggle that may go on in someone's heart and just, just not knowing where, where, where they are as far as finding their way home. They still haven't figured it out yet. People are lost. People are blind. People are in need of help. And a father is calling them home. That is what John 3, 16 and 17 is all about. Just, just read it one more time. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into this world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now, did you notice verse 17 and what it says that Jesus came to do. It doesn't say that Jesus came to condemn. In fact, John was very clear in, in recording these words um, and these words of Jesus. That didn't, he didn't come to condemn the world because we found out in reading verse 18 that the world was already condemned. That was their condition. Jesus came to do what? Say it. Save the world. And, and that's just really kind of a, a word that describes the whole of the gospel, the whole plan 
that we read at the beginning of the service there in Isaiah chapter 8, and just the whole, or yeah, Isaiah chapter 9, I'm sorry, the whole plan of, of redemption, the whole plan of reconciliation, which includes this, this wonderful celebration of Christmas, Jesus coming as a little baby, but ultimately going to a cross. But you see, our, our culture, and even the culture of the world, actually loves this expression, save the world, right? Uh, just think about it, but they, they use it to promote their own ends. They've distorted it. Here are some ways in which they use it, all right? Save the world from greedy billionaires, right? Hasn't that, isn't that really what's been going on the past month or so? If there just weren't any greedy billionaires, this place would be so much better. And they'd pay for my schooling and for me to do what I want to do. Um, save the world from financial ruin. Oh, yeah, we want, we want to know how that happens, right? Especially if you live in Greece. All right? Save the world from political instability. I mean, there's constant talk about politics, even the United Nations and all the stuff that's happening around the world. Why? Because we've got to save this world. Here's another one. Save the world from rogue terrorists, wherever they may be striking. All right? We've got to get out there. We've got to do it. Save the world from catastrophic disease. That's, that's good. It's legitimate. All right, save the world also from climate change. I don't know how you can save the world from climate change, but climate change is just going to happen, right? It is what it is. Uh, you remember back when the tsunamis were hitting? It just seemed like all of them. And people were, people were like, we've got to find some answer. Have fun with that one, all right? Enjoy yourselves with that. Things happen. Save the world from religious bigotry and intolerance. There's probably a lot more we could add to this list, but you see how this whole idea of, of saving the world from, a, from a, uh, the, the, the context of the culture is concerned really is a complete distortion of this message that Jesus has come to save the world. It's a completely different message, and it clouds the true message of Christmas and the true message of the gospel. So, this, this message that John gives us is that the salvation of the world can only come through the Son of God. And it's coming um, through this Son in the form of a baby, but ultimately a baby that goes to a cross. So that's why John 3.16 is such a precious and favorite passage of Scripture. Um, I can't think of any other verse that people at a, at a football game would hold up. And, and just present. And there's a reason why John 3.16 has been such a key passage of Scripture for the church through the years. I want you to, to think through um, some of the statements that we're going to look at here. First of all, Bruce Milne. Bruce Milne says, John 3.16 is a masterly and moving summary of the gospel cast in terms of the love of God. Just one verse of Scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life is a masterly and moving summary of the gospel cast in terms of the love of God. What Martin Luther says is really profound but simple. John 3.16 is, is the Bible in miniature. You can summarize the main themes of the Word of God in one verse, it's the Bible in miniature. It contains God's entire message. Richard Phillips says, John 3.16 presents the Bible 
of the Bible's greatest theme, God's love for us through Jesus Christ. And the key word there is through. Through Jesus Christ. God's love extended to us in the person of Jesus Christ. God's grace extended to us by virtue of what took place uh, with Jesus Christ on a cross. So this is just the wonderful message of the gospel, and it really is a wonderful message for Christmas. And this morning, um, we want to see John 3.16, probably the greatest verse in the Bible, um, where Jesus reveals three dynamics of his glorious gospel, and it's really the message of Christmas, three dynamics then of his glorious gospel. And let's think through the first one here. The message of Christmas is rooted in an amazing love. It's the first dynamic here of this glorious gospel. The message of Christmas, the message of this, this baby coming to this earth, beginning this earthly process of accomplishing what God desired to accomplish on a cross, this message is rooted in an amazing love. Now, the word love in our English language is a very weak word, isn't it? Because today, some of you are going to be going home, and you're, going to, you're just going to absolutely love the food that is prepared for you. It's going to be for some tamales, right? For some, I heard prime rib. For some, it's ham. Um, fortunately, it's not Taco Bell, right? Because it's closed, um, which, you know, it's sad, I know, but, you know, it's one of those things you have to endure on a day like this. Um, but, you know, you say, well, I, I just love that food, or I, I love cheesecake. Anyone have cheesecake waiting for you at home that you haven't touched yet? No? Okay. You, you love cheesecake. So this word love comes out in talking about food, or, uh, you know, a child might open up this present and say, oh, I love this. Or maybe a dad opens up the present and he's like, wow, yeah, I love it, right? And then we turn almost in the same breath and we say, honey, I love you. And you love me like you love the cheesecake? Why, yes. Uh, it's, right? it's, it's, it's the weakness of that word in the English language that gives it such a broad array of application. Okay? And it's important for us to see that when we come to the Word of God, in particular, John 3.16, the word love there is the word agape, which is a very unique form of love expressed. It is a, it is a word that gives kind of a narrow understanding of, of love, and it has a number of different ways you can approach it, but ultimately it is a love that gives, it is a love that is sacrificial, it is a love that is, that is endearing completely to the object of, um, of, of the giver. And so when we come to this word love, it is far more than simply some sentimentality. It is, it is a love expressed out of, out of sacrifice, out of passion, out of purpose that is really unlike any other kind of love that you and I can experience, all right? So this, this love, first of all, is something that we need to, to make sure that we, we recognize is different than the love that we talk about in our own English language. It's an amazing love. Now, it's an amazing love, first of all, because of its magnitude. Just, just again, once read verse 16. For God, it doesn't say for God love the world. It says for God what? So loved. See, that's a, that's a kind of a, a nuance there in the text, in, in what God has revealed there to emphasize the magnitude 
of God's love. And I just want to take a few moments here to to see in God's word how this word love is described in other passages by other writers and ultimately also as it reflects the attributes of God. Um, Ephesians chapter 2 verses 4 and 5 we find here that the the magnitude of God's love is described here as being great. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 4 and 5 say this. This is Paul speaking. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love which, uh, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So this word great emphasizes this love. Now again, the word great in our English language is kind of a, it's a word that's kind of lost its impact. You know, how was, you know, your Christmas Eve? Oh, it was great. You know, how was that meal that you had? Oh, it was great. How are you doing today? Oh, great. I mean, it just, it, it, there's just different ways that we use it. This word, though, in the Greek has a much deeper, fuller, and richer meaning. It, it's, a, it's a word that literally describes an overflowing harvest. It's a word that also is used to describe an, an overflowing of emotions. What do you do with an overflowing harvest? In fact, we read a little bit about that in Isaiah chapter 9. One of the things that God would give was this overabundance of a harvest, and the spoils would be divided. What about this, this overflowing emotion? So just think about this. God's love is overflowing. It's not just great in the sense, hey, it's cool. It's overflowing in the sense of it's, it's just abundant in its, in its magnitude. It is just incredible. And it's not only a flowing, overflowing in its abundance, but it's overflowing in its, its kind of an emotional direction toward us. It really is a great love. His love is also incomprehensible. Um, Ephesians chapter 3, if you're in your Bibles there, Ephesians chapter 3, just a, a chapter before here, or after I should say, and beginning at verse 18 says, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And what we're able to comprehend about God's love is that it surpasses or it's beyond knowledge. <laughs> we're at least able to comprehend that. But the bottom line is this, that you and I will never exhaust the love of God. You and I will never exhaust learning and, and, and becoming face-to-face -face with the joys and the beauty of the gospel. It will never be exhausted. Now, those are just a couple of things that the Apostle Paul says about love, but I want us to shift gears a little bit here and just mention this, that, that God's love never stands alone as an attribute. I want you to think about this. His, his, his love is always fashioned by his varied, and many other attributes. And we'll look at a few of these and understand that. Because the next thing I, I want us to understand is, is God holy? What's the answer? Absolutely. And if God is holy, then guess what? His love is also holy. Now, we're living in a context and in a culture that talks about love and includes that love kind of with a, a romantic edge that is laced with sin, <laughs> right? And it's all kind of put in this big lump that, that love has this kind of 
this erotic, sinful side to it, and that's what love really is. Friends, when we look at God's love, his love is never laced with sin at all. It is a holy love. It is a pure love. And God, when he showers himself on us, wants his love ultimately to push us toward holiness, toward purity. Isn't that what he says he's doing with the bride of Christ? He's nurturing the bride of Christ because he wants to present that bride holy and without blemish. That's part of God's loving passion toward his children. So it is a holy love. It is also a mighty love. You can write down Romans 8, 35 and following. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sakes we are being killed all day long. We are guarded, uh, regarded as, uh, as sheep to be slaughtered. Now in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers, it goes on, shall separate us from the love of Christ which is in Christ Jesus. Why? Because his love is mighty. No thing, no event, no person will ever separate us from the love of Christ which is in Christ Jesus. All right? So, so it, it is mighty and it, it is strong. It is powerful. His love is unchanging. Aren't you glad that's the case? God doesn't send you a letter one day and say, you know what? Um, I've fallen out of love with you. It's a Dear John letter to you. You know, it's over between us. God's love is not fickle like that. God's love never changes. It's unlike any other kind of love that there is. He never changes. It's always the same. His love is also eternal. It just continues on and on and on. You can rest at night knowing that when you wake up in the morning, his love is still being showered on you. It is eternal. It is everlasting like that. His love is also sovereign. In other words, here's a passage of Scripture, Ephesians 1, actually the end of, chapter, of verse 4 and 5, it says this, In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So God's will, which was an act of his love, was directed toward us. And it was a sovereign thing. It was, a, it was his, his purpose, his plan that was, that was overseeing his love being exercised through Jesus Christ for our benefit. It is sovereign. Listen to what James Boyce says. God's love is a sovereign one. His love is uninfluenced by anything um, in the creature. And if that is so, it is the same as saying that the cause of God's love lies only in himself. In Scripture, no cause for God's love other than his electing will is ever given. This is so important for us, guys. When God loves us, hear this, it's not because we're cool. It's not because we've done certain things to impress him. He loves us because he chooses to love us. It is, it is purely from within him. It's not because you did some dance and you caught his attention. He said, aha, there's someone to love. No, 
within him, he says, I love you. And that's the origin. That's where it comes from. So there is this, this magnitude of love. I mean, it is huge. For God so loved the world. The second thing here about, uh, about this amazing love is its object. And its object is what? The world. Well, what is the world? Is it, is it the globe? Is it physically the globe? No. Um, this expression that John uses, the world, um, really is described in this way. It is the world of unbelief. It is fallen mankind, secular society, rebel humanity, God's creatures in rebellion against their creator. So this whole world system, this, this whole world of people that really are against God or just wandering in life, just wanting to ignore and forget about God, that is the system, that is the world that is being described here. And we're told here, for God so loved this incredible magnet, uh, uh, this, this huge, amazing love, loves this object, the world, that is fallen, that is in rebellion, that doesn't want anything to do with it. And that, in a sense, is shocking, is it? Why would God love the world? Well, there are three reasons. There's three reasons, I should say, why this is such an amazing statement. Just follow with me as I share these. Number one, this world doesn't believe in him. This world doesn't believe in him. It doesn't trust him, doesn't obey him, doesn't reverence him. I mean, isn't it interesting that even in our culture, um, people have a problem with us saying Merry Christmas? Just wanting to stuff out the whole reason behind the season here. And I don't mean that just to be, well, I want to, this is a political battle. No, it's, a, it's not only become a political thing, but it's, it's also a cultural thing. This is a Christmas season. There's a reason why people put trees up in their house. There's a reason why we have lights. There's a reason why, you know, all those things are related to Christmas. There's a reason why you go home and watch Elf. Okay? Why? Let me tell you what. It's because of a season called Christmas. Right? It is what it is. And we need to embrace that. We just rejoice over that. But the world doesn't believe him and so wants to kind of water down what the real origins and roots are for this celebration. All right? And my goal isn't to offend anyone that may not be a Christian, but hey, it is what it is. You know? It's that season that was created because of a birth of Christ, right? Now, here, listen to what Dick Lucas says. I think this is really important for us to comprehend. An individual may believe, but the world will not. Now, because the world represents all these people who are shaking their fist at God. They don't want to believe in him. Go to the end of chapter 3 of John's gospel here. You should have it there in your Bible, John chapter 3. Go to the end of it, last verse, in verse 36, and I just want you to notice, after all that's been talked about in this chapter, as the, the, the whole encounter with, with Nicodemus takes place, where Jesus says, you must be born again, and other interaction here about the gospel is unfolded for us, in verse 36, here's what, um, here's what we find. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Does it sound like it's connected to John 3.16? Okay. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on him. Now, I don't know if you noticed this, 
but the opposite, or the antecedent here of belief is obedience. You either believe, and if you don't believe, then you're disobeying. You're not obeying. And the result of not obeying is what? What does it say? The wrath of God, all right? Remember the word John 3.16? What's the word that would correspond to that? Perish. So the wrath of God then is, is poured out against those who do not believe. So we talk about for God so loved the world. That is not like, you know, carte blanche now that everyone, um, you know, everyone is now a child of God and, and is experiencing this kind of, you know, fuzzy love that everyone can just embrace. There are those who believe and there are those who don't. And those who don't are not walking in obedience and the end result of that is the wrath of God is going to be poured out on them. Well, it's because they're condemned. And that's the ultimate reason. But get this. The world doesn't believe, but God still, what? Loves the world. I mean, really, it should be somewhat shocking. Here's the next thing. The world doesn't listen to him. Now, pulling a little bit from the context of what's going on in John's gospel. The light has come into the world, but people would rather walk in darkness than listen to the light. Right? We read that also in Isaiah chapter 9. The world doesn't receive the testimony, the testimony of John, the testimony of Jesus, the testimony of the disciples. The world doesn't, just doesn't want to receive that. John chapter 1, we find even his own people, Israel, did not receive him. It's all part of the context here of John's gospel. But still, even though they don't want to listen to him, even they don't want to hear what he has to say, God still loves this world. Here's the last one. The world doesn't understand him, doesn't comprehend him. And this again goes back to the whole encounter with Jesus and Nicodemus. Jesus gives a, this, this message, you must be born again, and, and Nicodemus just could not comprehend what Jesus was saying. He's saying, I have to enter my, my mother's womb again? How, how is that going to happen? And he's like, no, no, and he explains it with all these different illustrations, and Nicodemus still doesn't quite get it because he's thinking literally. Right? Now, anyone here ever been accused of, of your position being one who says, I believe that the Bible is to be understood and read literally? You guys, first of all, do you agree with that? Hopefully the answer is yes, all right? All right? But you have to understand what you mean by that, right? Because the, 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 you know, a great example of what, uh, of what ultimate literalism that goes outside the understanding of what we mean by being literal is what Nicodemus struggles with. He's taking Jesus' words, spiritual analogy here, totally literally because he doesn't have the ability to comprehend what Jesus is saying. He does not understand. Now listen, there are so many people that fit into this category. They're good people. They're decent people. They're law-abiding people. They're kind. They're gracious. They're generous but they just don't understand the gospel. But still, God so loved the world. Absolutely amazing. You and I would have given up years ago, but God, even though so many people shake their fist at him, want nothing to do with him, don't want to listen to him, he hasn't given up on them. He so loves the world. 
Here's the second message of Christmas. Um, not only is this an amazing love, it is achieved through an amazing gift. The message of Christmas is achieved through an amazing gift. Now just think about this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Now if you're like me, probably this week you have been rushing around trying to get all your Christmas shopping done. That is you, raise your hand. This is like a, a group therapy session, okay? Just want to make sure we're all, okay? <laughs> all right, now we've gotten that out, all right? We put a lot of time and effort into thinking about and chasing after and purchasing the gifts for people that we love, right? All right? Because there's something about Christmas season and this opportunity express our love that, that is important to us. So, so what is amazing about the gift that was given to the world? Now, I know we can say given to us, but what was amazing about the gift that is given to the world? All right, well, we're going to look at that. Let me give you three answers here. Number one, this gift is prepared. We're told, we're told in um, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3, listen, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So the Godhead in eternity past, before the world was created, already understood that we would be in bondage already understood that we would be blind, already understood that we would be a needy people and prepared before that world was created this gift for the world. Now, I know you put a lot of preparation into selecting your gifts. Let me tell you something. It doesn't compare to what the Godhead has done in preparing the gift for you. A lot of thought preparation for this wonderful gift. The second amazing thing about this gift is that it's priceless. Pulled out of this text here, I think, very, very carefully and appropriately, but notice that this is the most valuable gift that can be given ever. There's nothing in this world more valuable to us, I think, than our own flesh and blood. When, when, when a parent sends their son or daughter off into the military, they are saying, I'm letting you go and I understand you're going to be in harm's way. Right, honey? Right, Gavin? We know that. Why? Because we understand that that's the whole purpose of the military. You don't go into the military to get an education. You go in the military, first of all, saying, I'm willing to die for my country. And maybe get an education, right? And so it is, a, it is an act of sacrifice. What we have going on here is God saying, I'm willing to give my son as a sacrifice, but it says it more specifically, I'm willing to give my only son. It's not like, you know, he had, God had a bunch of sons on the side and said, well, I can, I can give you one. This is he, his one his only, his precious son. This gift is priceless. It is the most valuable gift. 
Listen to 1 John chapter 4 and verses 9 and 10. 1 John 4 verses 9 and 10. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins, the covering, ultimately the payment, the sacrifice, the atonement for our sins. This is love, that God would do that with his priceless son. The next thing about this gift is that it is perfect. Now, I know, I know you men have, have really thought long and hard about what you're getting your wives. I know that you have you have planned for years the gift that is under the tree today. I know that's the case. And I know that you've been on the internet searching and you've been to all those places to evaluate whether this is the best gift or not. Consumer reports may be something you purchased just to study this particular gift, right? Because you want it to be perfect. You want it to be right. And in all your efforts... The likelihood is that when you give that perfect gift, whether it's to a spouse or someone else, that person might look at you and say, oh, this is such a wonderful gift. Thank you so much. But on Boxing Day, which is tomorrow, they'll be in the return lines <laughs> getting the gift that they really want. And we all know that to be true because we've all done it, right? Right? We don't have to have, you know, a show of hands for that. But here, listen, we don't have to worry whether or not God's gift is perfect for us or not. It is. His gift meets our need completely. He knows us. He understands us. He comprehends what we truly need his gift of his son is perfect. He is the solution for our problems. He is the one that brings joy to life. God knows that, and so he is giving his son as a perfect gift to this world. You can't find any other gift that is as perfect as Jesus Christ. All your efforts and all your attempts. Now, God sent his son to reveal his truth, to proclaim the good news of salvation, and especially to do the work needed for the salvation of those who would believe. The gift ultimately has a reason behind it or a purpose behind it, and that gift ultimately was to go to that cross and die in our place. Listen to J.C. Ryle and what he says about this. Christ is God, the Father's gift to a lost and sinful world. He was given generally to be the Savior, the Redeemer, the friend of sinners, to make an atonement sufficient for all and to provide a redemption large enough um, for all to effect this. The Father freely gave him up to be despised, rejected, mocked, crucified, and counted guilty and accursed for our sakes. So, so hear this. When we see the expression... God gave his only son in the Christmas text, we should also be thinking about the cross, not just a baby in a manger. 
Because that gift is not finalized until Jesus breathes out the words, what? It is finished. That is ultimately the sacrifice that is paid. And then, of course, there's the resurrection that proves that Jesus Christ is who he said he, he came to be and he, that he was. So this gift is so precious, friends. So perfect. So prepared for the world. But it's also that for you. And one of the things that you can do today is as you read the Christmas story together, as you gather around the tree and as you spend time thinking, you can talk about the gift of salvation, but just think about the gift of Jesus that was directed to the world. But of course, you're part of that world and you may now be a believer who is part of, might want to say, the greater world, but Jesus came to die on the cross for you and the gift was for you. And we need to comprehend how perfect and precious and prepared that gift was on our behalf. Well, not only is this message of Christmas about an amazing love, an amazing gift, it's also about an amazing life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that, so here's the goal, here's the result, right? That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, this life that is being talked about in John 3.16 does not come automatically. It is not a life that all experience. We need to understand what this text says. First of all, this life comes only through belief. Now, if you've been with us over the past few weeks, you will understand what I'm about to say, but please hear this as if this is, this is new and fresh to you. This idea of life and this idea of belief is not a belief here that is a superficial belief. Superficial belief simply meaning that people saw Jesus and they saw his miracles and they saw him cast out demons and they, they may have personally experienced a physical healing and they're in awe and they're amazed and they believe in the sense that, yes, he can do all these things, but it's not a belief that recognizes him as the Messiah. It's not a belief that says, you are the Messiah, and I'm going to put my trust and my faith totally in you. It's a belief that says, wow, we have a miracle worker here. We have someone that can do these incredible things. All those miracles, all those wonders were compassionate pointers to reveal that Jesus is the Messiah. And that's why so many times the church can be distracted by miracles and those kinds of things because it can take away from who Jesus is. That's what happened. That's what Jesus was addressing there at the end of chapter 2. We went through that hard passage. So the belief that's being talked about here is a belief that recognizes and embraces Jesus as the Messiah. It's a belief that his sacrifice on the cross was a necessary payment for my sin. It's a belief that trust that what Jesus accomplished on the cross provided full and complete and total forgiveness for my sin. Complete restoration, complete reconciliation, complete adoption into his family. It's a belief that humbly submits to Jesus as Messiah, as Lord, that he is the one that now is, is driving and dictating the direction and the passion of my life. It's not just saying, wow, he's really, really cool. He can do all these wonderful things. 
Those were all entry points for us to see him as the Messiah. So there's this amazing life, but it only comes through belief. It's an amazing life that avoids perishing. Aren't you glad of that? I don't, let's not make light of this. There is an avoidance here that is part of God's divine plan. You and I, when we came out of our mother's womb, and we all did, we're destined for wrath. We're already condemned. But God, in his love, pursued us. And he, by his love, has drawn us in. Because of the gospel, because of Jesus, because of this gift, we are no longer perishing. We've moved from condemnation, wrath, and perishing to eternal life and to abundant life. This is a complete shift in our orientation, a complete change in where we were headed before. And friends, this is the grace that God has showered on us. This is the beautiful, wonderful, good news that we did not deserve, and yet God desired for us and has given to us. It's also, though, a life that is eternal and abundant. Now, a couple of things I want to say about this. First of all, I want you to think about what I've just said here about it being eternal and abundant this way. Since God has given his Son, we may be confident of receiving every other help and mercy we need to endure this life and arrive safely into heaven. In other words... When you embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, when you become part of the family of God, it's not just the gift of salvation that you receive. You receive so much more than that. His gift continues on. It is abundant. Do you guys remember the Energizer Bunny? Is that still being shown on the commercials? I mean, he keeps going and going and going, right? And this love and this life that we have because of the gift keeps going and going. It never stops. It continues on. Listen to Romans chapter 8 and verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? See, it's it's not just that you were given salvation. What are you given here? All things. All things. Now, I want you to think about this. You men will understand this completely, okay? Imagine salvation is like a toolbox, see? All the ladies are like, huh? And all the men are like, I'm with you, Pastor Rod. (laughs) Got it. It's figured out, all right? It's like a toolbox, You've been given this gift. You go to the the tree and you open up this gift and you say, oh, wow, look at this toolbox. It's an amazing toolbox. But it's more than a toolbox. Why? Because when you open up the toolbox, what do you find inside? Tools. I know. I know we're a slow crowd here, okay, but we, we, we can get there, right? What kind of tools do you have in a toolbox? Screwdrivers, Phillips screwdrivers, okay? 
The rest are all flatheads. You can take that however you want, you know, it's fine. All right, absolutely, yeah. All right, you find wrenches and then some ratchety wrenches too, right? What else do you find? Hammers. When nothing else works, there's nothing like a good hammer, right? What else? Saws, all different kinds of saws, all right? Pliers, clamps, what else? We're exhausting all the tools. Now the real tool guys are going to come out, right? What? Sockets, very good. Huh? Levels. Now, just, just use that analogy. Use that analogy. Here, God is giving you this toolbox called salvation. When you get it, God has also given in that toolbox all that you need for life and godliness. Everything is there. It is at your disposal. That's what this is talking about. God, who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, he will not, will he not, also with him graciously give us all things. When you're struggling because of a trial you've gone through, guess what? God has a tool in his toolbox exactly for that struggle. When you're feeling depressed, God has a perfect tool to help you during that time. When you're, when you're sick, or maybe you have a, a, a loss in your family, God brings out another tool. Maybe when you're angry, God has a tool. And all these tools are there at our disposal. God is just giving us life, and he's giving us life that is eternal, and he's giving us life that is abundant. And it's all there. And it's a perfect, beautiful, wonderful gift for all of us. So this is not some promise of monetary prosperity that's being talked about here but a promise that God's, that God's grace is fleshed out and that he gives us his kindness and his mercy, his provision and care, his guidance and counsel, his presence, his activity in our lives. He is constantly at work and providing for us all these tools within this toolbox as we live our lives. He is purifying us. He is growing us. He is nurturing us. He is comforting us and conforming us to his will. Isn't that awesome? See, we talk about, you know, if you, if you believe you will have eternal life, it's just not a ticket to heaven. It's far more about that life that God wants us to understand and see. And, and friends, I, I just, I want you to know that. I want you to hear that. That living the Christian life is a joyful experience of of allowing all these tools in God's toolbox to be affected in our lives and to, to see them accomplished and, and worked, uh, used to work on our hearts so that we can be conformed to, to the image of his son. Let me just bring things to a close. This, this, uh, a couple of days ago as I was out shopping, I was at Target. Actually, it was yesterday. Um, I've been doing a lot of shopping. Um, it was yesterday, I was at Target, and I, I ran out and did, got a couple things, and of course the lines were full. And you understand how Target is, what their lines are like, right? They have like two rows of these, of checkout counters, right? It's not like, you know, there's, a, there's like 10 to choose from that are all in the line. They're like 10 to choose from, and they're, they're all like staggered, right? And uh, so I get my stuff done, and I'm, I'm one of these people that's like, you know, if I don't have to stand in the line too long, I really don't want to, right? You can probably like that too. So you're kind of, as you go to Target, you guys been to Target, you know what I'm talking about, right? 
Okay? So I'm at Target, and I'm walking through, and I'm looking. I'm, I'm taking in all the lines, and I'm trying to decide which one I'm going to go into. Right? You guys know what I'm talking about. You've been there before. Right? You've got like 20 feet to figure that out. So you're slowly going through that, checking them all out, and I see, aha, this one. And it happened to be one of the, one of the rows that's behind the other rows. Right? So I kind of go, okay, boom, boom, and I slide down in there, and I start going down there. And someone from behind me says, sir. And I looked around and said, yes. He says, there's one line here. I said, oh, really? No, I'm trying to be kind and nice. It's Christmas season, right? All full of cheer and graciousness, right? So I look around and I say, there's one line here. And I said, yeah, but there's two registers. He says, yes, but we have one line here. I said, okay. So I, I actually asked the group, I said, are all of you standing in this one line waiting for two registers? And they all kind of looked at me like, I don't know what to say, you know. Um, <laughs> You know, and uh, I said, hey, you know what, I'll go, I'll stand in the back of this line. And uh, you know what eventually happened was someone else came in, you know, and, and did the same thing. And they ended up, you know, going up there and the guy at the front was like, well, I, actually, I thought that that's what was going on, blah, blah, blah. So the point was, there, there's a system going on at Target. Yeah, I'm really bitter now. It's been a really awful Christmas, <laughs> right? <laughs> All right. <laughs> you know, you, you know what that's like, right? So, um, Lost my train of thought. So, so this, this person, you know, goes through, and, and this person gets up there and says, yeah, he says, you know, I, I thought this was the way it was. There was no target employee saying, there's one line here for two registers. Someone took it upon themselves, and other people followed, apparently, to come to the same conclusion. And it was a mess. Because I was actually waiting. Okay, this guy that said, sure, there's one line here. You know, all right, so there's two registers open. When are you going to make your move for one or the other? You know, because what's happening here? And friends, this is what happens when we make our own rules when there are already rules established, right? Now, hopefully you see where I'm going with this, right? There is a connection here, okay? God has one register. It's only one. It's not a smorgasbord of options. There's one register and there's one lane, right? It's called the narrow way, right? And sadly, our culture wants to make up its own rules and give options that there are other ways to do this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The salvation, this gift, comes through His Son. No other option. There's only one way that you and I can be blessed by this wonderful, amazing gift that gives life and life abundant, and that is through Jesus Christ. Friends, please, 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 don't be found in a different line, checking out at a different register when you're being drawn to the narrow gate that is Jesus Christ. This gift is for you. This life is for you. For God so loved you that he gave his only son that whoever, which is a subset of the world, believes in him won't perish but we'll have what? Eternal life. That is the message, my friends, of Christmas, ultimately. It is the message of the gospel.
Lord, help us today as we contemplate your son Jesus Christ coming into this earth as a little baby and all the events of of that taking place and Lord, how that is all connected to the Old Testament prophecies and yet, Lord, that was the beginning that had as its mark the cross where Jesus hung and died for our sin. And then, Lord, we know that having been taken down from that cross, that he rose again, putting the seal of confidence and approval and satisfaction on on, on what he accomplished on that cross on our behalf. And Jesus right now is seated at your right hand. And Lord, we we who are your children rejoice over the fact that you have showered your love to us that we have been the objects of this amazing love, that we have been the the recipients of this amazing gift, that we are now living this amazing life. And yet at the same time, Lord, we may be living this amazing life, but we, we may be trying to do it on our own and without your help. And maybe that's just in certain areas of our life. Lord, I ask that today that all your children would reflect on the gift that they have been given, which is your son and which is the life that comes as a result of that. And we would align ourselves once again back under your leadership and your guidance. And Lord, I ask today that if there's someone here that is part of our church or that is visiting with us today that that really has not embraced you, that has not received the gift of eternal life, Lord, that today, today they would see that this this expression of love is for them. This gift is for them. And life is looming and ready and waiting to be given to them. Lord, would would you do your work in our hearts, we ask. In your precious holy name, amen.